You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest today is Mark Farner. He's the leader of Grand Funk Railroad and wrote the vast majority of the songs on their 11 albums from 1969 to 1976. You're right now listening to Closer to Home, parentheses, I'm Your Captain from Closer to Home, 1970. He had two solo albums in the late 70s and two more Grand Funk Railroad albums in the early 80s. Then turned to God Rock with three Christian albums from 88 to 91. And there was a Grand Funk Railroad reunion. He's only had a few releases in the 21st century. We're going to be discussing a song called Nadine from his last full album, For the People, from 2006. Then Not Yet from 1991's Some Kind of Wonderful. Then the title track from Born to Die by Grand Funk Railroad from 1976. And we'll conclude by listening to his most recent single, 2015's Take You Out. For more information, please see markfarner.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of I'm Your Captain by Grand Funk Railroad from Closer to Home 1970. We're going to get very quickly to the newer stuff. I would not be surprised if people heard this Nadine and thought it was from a couple decades before. Can you say a little about where you're at with this album for the people 2006 before we hear the song? I've always had a patriotic heart, but I just, I felt like that many years ago, very compelled to reach out. And the title song, For the People, expresses pretty much where my heart was setting and still sets today. And where do we go from here? Another one from that album. Actually, anything about this song in particular? So this is not one of the particularly political songs in the album, but I just thought it showed off certain elements of your style really well. You know, songwriters, we fantasize, we make things up and write a song about it. It's an emotion. It's a uh, desire. It could be a a number of uh, where it's coming from. So Nadine is actually sung about my wife, Lisa, spelled L-E-S-I-A. I told her, I said, honey, this song's for you, but I'm saying it's Nadine because Nadine sings that it's got two vowels in there, A-E. It's really, I really like it. She says, well, go ahead. I'll be your Nadine this year, honey. It's all about Lisa.
so it's interesting why you pick that name. I mean, clearly it's just for sonic reasons, right? It sort of rhymes with the things you want to rhyme with. Absolutely. I have a song that is called Pretty Preta, but no, that's also about my wife whose name is Kim. It's not even ethnically the same. It just sounded nice to me at the time. You get it. <laughs> so for a love song, I don't want to say this is a downer. I mean, it's mid-tempo, but it's, you know, it's a minor key rocker. I feel strongly about you. I, it's, it's a strange mood for something that's just, I'll always love you. Where was this coming from? You're trapped in there. You're so melancholy about being that deeply in love. You can't rock it. You just got to lay it out in that smooth way. I see. So it's almost like fear of how much you love somebody. You can make anything a little negative <laughs> if, you, if you dwell on it enough. This intro guitar riff, it sort of reminded me of Santana or something like that. Can you say anything about where that kind of lick comes from? Or are you collecting these over time and like, oh, you know, and then you use it five years later? In that case, Mark, it was right on the spot. I heard the lick before I knew the chords to the song. I was hearing that lick. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's a nice little lick. And a lot of times I will throw it on, back in the day, put it on a cassette tape. I have boxes full of cassette tapes with little lick. <laughs> you can use your phone now. <laughs> well, now I got a USB recorder, a little thing, you know, and I can throw it down as well as my phone. But I don't always have my phone with me, and I have that little recorder where I set and play. I do have a bunch of those. I got thousands of those. <laughs> How do you then find, oh, okay, I've got a song. It needs a good head. There's no way that, I mean, it just has to have followed you in your head. I don't file it in my random access memory. There's no way. <laughs> but I do have them to fall back on. And once in a while, I will go back and listen. And just fast forward and listen, fast forward and listen. You know, you can you can scan through pretty quickly uh, what you have. I told Lisa, I said, I'm calling it Get Shit. So it's short for guitar shit. And that's my file on my computer. I said, after I'm dead and gone, if somebody wants some licks, there's a whole bunch of them in here. Sell them to them. <laughs> <laughs> License you out as samples after you're dead. Wow. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's funny that that guitar lick came first. So did you just have the pa, and then how do you dictate to that to your, this is Hubert Crawford on drums, is that right? Yes. Yeah, because he's putting a lot of little, elaborating that rhythm to, you know, make the song what it is. At what point are you bringing him in? Do you have a full demo, or are you working this up with the band? I've already got a demo, and then I play it to the guys. Like with drum machine, or just? I have drum machine. Okay. I got an RX-8. Yamaha. It's the one I use on everything. But you can tune it. They're real simple. You can tune them up and down. And I mean, you can make a floor tom sound like a bass drum. And I mean, sure. Is the rhythm section that eventually comes out of this in this final recording about how much does that resemble the demo? Like, had you figured out, okay, this is exactly the, the bass riff that I want. And this is the drum riff and just play that. Or are they really taking it to another level after a few practices or something? Of course, Lawrence Buckner played bass on that, and he's very creative. And I always give my guys that room. You know, I give them the space that they can add to it. And with uh, Hubert, he is a Don Brewer understudy. I mean, he gives Brewer the credit for 
all of his drum licks and stuff. He says, because that's my guy, man. He says, I'm sorry if you got any bad feelings. I said, I don't have no bad feelings. You can go ahead and have, he's a great drummer. There's no doubt about it. But the intro to American Band, that's my drum intro. I wrote that. And Brewer didn't even own a cowbell. So I got some drums in me too. It must be my Cherokee roots. Because I heard at the end of the song, like you can tell that Lawrence, your bass player, is just monster. That he wants to, he wants to be doing funk riffs because I think toward the end of the song, he does a. But the rest of it seems very controlled. Like this is pretty much what you told him to do. And it just occurred to me that it's actually the. Like that basic rhythmic structure. Yeah. Are you working this up with the band to play live before you're going in the studio? Yes. We actually put Nadine in the live set. In Texas, they love it. They played it on the radio down there for me. So people were very happy to, to see it live. And I'm very happy to be able to play it live, brother. <laughs> when you actually get in the studio, I, I, actually, I didn't see who the producer was on this. Is this self-produced? Yeah. When you actually got in the studio, you're adding... I assume like the shaker wasn't there live. That sort of actually papers over the pa that the fact that you're shaking through that the whole time and you don't actually have a pause or the ooze. I assume that's all pretty much from the demo that they're just recreating. Yeah. Okay. I hear the background vocals when I'm writing, I can hear the parts and on the demo, I do all the parts and then the guys grab the bass player I've got now is from Detroit, Paul Randolph. And Lawrence is no longer with us. He's really into the being the school teacher down there in Jacksonville, Florida, where he lives. He's got a good 401k and all that other stuff going for him. And so he became too busy with his daytime gig <laughs> to carry on a nighttime gig. So we got Paul. And Paul did the Alice Cooper sessions with me and uh, Johnny B and Wayne Kramer from MC5. That's when I met Paul, and Paul, we did background vocals out there on the Alice Cooper stuff, and he's standing there next to me singing, and I, I really appreciate a good voice, you know, so I'm thinking, dang, man, this guy can really sing. He's got character in his voice. I like him. I like who he is. He's not trying to be somebody. He's just who you see. I like that about him, and so I called him, asked him if he could do the gig, and, and he's in the band, so I'm a happy guy when we go alive. Got good players. Yeah. So it seems like you don't have to really sacrifice anything in terms of, I don't know, do you sometimes overwrite the harmonies so that, you know, there's too many of them when you actually get live, you got to slim it back. You got to compromise in some way just to make it more comfortable for the band. Not currently. (laughs) Everybody sings. All three other players sing and I sing. So I got three guys back of me that are strong singers. Yeah. As long as you have a good engineer (laughs) to balance all that stuff. Oh yeah. That makes a big difference. Because I can't hear. I mean, I'm seriously, I'm half deaf in one ear and I can't see out of the other. So the solo in here, I want to just play a little bit. I was interested in how the rhythm here relates to your initial da-da-da-da-da. Let's see. That it seems like it's in here you're answering, whereas you're anticipating for the main riff. For the solo, it's... So it's like you're answering what you did earlier in the song. Can you even put it into words of what goes through your head when you're deciding, making these decisions? You know, I'm listening to it go by. 
I'm listening to it and I'm thinking about because I have to run it past, you know, run the song at the slot just before where I'm going to come into the lead and carry out all the way through for a couple of bars after and do that again. Listen again until I'm happy with the melody I'm hearing in my head. I don't try to just grab my guitar and figure something out. I have to hear it here. And that's what I was hearing. I was hearing that counter thing. And and I'm glad you picked up on it. In fact, you picked up on a lot of shit. (laughs) Just got to listen to something five times. That's all. And then as you get into it, I'm also kind of wondering how you decide at any given point how much of your chops to pull out, right? You laid in this solo, you have a even though you start in this very riff-oriented, just like you were singing way, well, you give yourself two full verses, I guess, of soloing so you can still build it up. So the second half is your more typical playing high, and I see here you dive bomb. But it doesn't actually ever get to the, you know, where you start stuffing in the notes. Like it stays tasteful pretty much throughout. Any sort of guidelines on like, no, this is not a spazzy enough song for me to really go out. No, I just went by uh, how it was going to reintroduce the vocals and how that was going to carry. I didn't want to try to push it past anything I wasn't feeling. Well, let me tell you one more transition section. This is actually going into the solo. I thought this was an interesting kind of tension-building thing. Just that you go into this little repeating riff. So you're soloing before the soloing. <laughs> the solo is twice as long as even I was thinking, right? So, so even just getting into that initial part, you've got the pre-solo that's sort of, it's the bridge, but like, why not? You didn't feel like you needed any bridge. The the theme of the song did not require any bridge vocals. No. And what you're saying, you know, that then it does a repeat of that. The little thing on the end where it goes into the next part of the riff. I do that frequently as far as a line. I'll do it like in an octave on the piano. I'll play it down here, and then I'll play it the next octave up. But the same thing, like I'm foot-stomping music, you know. It builds up when you hit that next octave up. It's almost like a modulation, but it's the same key. It's just, you know, you're going another octave up there. So it's a uh, dynamic, brother. <laughs> Let's get the second song out there. We can still circle back to this for comparison. Not yet. From some kind of wonderful back to 1991, the third of your Christian rock albums. Do you want to say a little about where you're at with this one before we hear it? God rock. I was under the influence of the churches I was going to. I, I had a home church, and it really it wasn't until I died that I really woke up to this. I had a pacemaker put in six years ago, and I died during the process. And I was in heaven, brother. I didn't want to come back out of there. As soon as you leave the bone suit, you are present with love. It's where you came from. And as soon as you die, you know that. You go, oh, I'm back. Oh, my God. And you know everything. You know all things. So I had to experience that part and then come back because they shot me, you know, wham, paddled me back in. And then I had this pacemaker put in. But part of the churching that I had was in that all those three albums, I think it was, the Christian uh, God Rock albums, I'm really not into churching like I was then because I was just following after everybody else. 
Now I know that Jesus died for all of us. And you don't, you could be the worst son of a bitch on the planet. He died for you. I mean, it's all good. You know, love on the other side. What we have to deal with in this world is completely insane. Where we came from and what we go back to is paradise, man. I tell you, it's paradise. And nice knowing all things, too. (laughs) But the bitch about it is, I didn't bring any of that back with me. I did bring something else, though. I never played slide guitar before, and now I can play slide. I do it unconventionally. I just leave the guitar in a regular tuning, and I use a pinky slide. And I like a little bottle, you know, like a wine bottle glass slide. It puts a character on it. And so I think when I did come back into this bone suit, I brought somebody else with me. (laughs) It could have been Montrose, because he was a good slide player, and he was my brother here on the planet. So I might have got a little Ronnie on me. (laughs) Well, let's revisit. Here's Not Yet. Supposed to be, but you still 
I don't want to say this is a mean song, but it's definitely like, you get with it. It's a scolding song. Are you saying that that's not quite the way you would deliver that message now? Oh, exactly. Because that wouldn't go over real good in the prison. <laughs> you know, seriously. That was under the influence of that. You got to do this. And it's an urgency while you're still sucking air being enrolled in that train of thought that, oh, we got to get as many as we can and it'll all be good. I can tell you, God don't give a shit about that. (laughs) Not anything like that, because that ain't God. And as a matter of fact, any organization that operates and functions under a 501c3 has given mankind the authority over a ministry supposedly for God. How do you give a man the authority over God? You can't do that. But these churches have, a lot of these churches and ministries have. So I'm just not there anymore. And I don't apologize. I just tell people, hey, that's where I was. And look, I evolved. (laughs) Sure. And it actually took me sitting down and looking at the lyrics to actually get that scolding tone because... The way that I hear that phrase, right, that's from St. Augustine, how he was a big drinker, he was a boozer, he was a partier, he was not living up to the values he eventually adopted, and so this is writing about his past, and the way that that is often quoted is kind of with a, you know, a little smile about the hedonism, like, yes, I acknowledge all the stuff I should be doing, but not yet. (laughs) The fact that your chorus, the catchy thing, the thing that is seducing people, is you're quoting the person you're arguing against. I hate it that you say, not yet, to me. (laughs) So it's almost like the song, because it's such a Stevie Wonder kind of groove that it really pulls you in. It almost works counter to its its, uh, message. (laughs) Ah, Great observation. When I was comparing this to Nadine, so Nadine, you know, since that got me thinking, your intro for whatever reason got me thinking of Santana, and I pulled up the Smooth song, which has actually a slower, funkier slimier beat like not yet and was kind of picturing if I don't know do these things go through different let's try it really fast let's try it really slow before the band decides where it actually feels comfortable no (laughs) they are locked in (laughs) okay (laughs) they come that way and they don't move in fact I'm a stickler on that and Hubert is a very excitable guy of course everything goes 10 beats faster in live for almost every band you know, and he played with James Brown and the Barcades and the Eric Gale band. He's been with a lot of guys and he's well liked throughout the industry. But he does have a tendency to get on the top side of it. <laughs> so I see for not yet, you're still using Lawrence Buckner that you were using much later on bass. Yeah, likewise, I guess it sort of reveals itself. Especially when you get to the time, like, were you listening to the time? What was influencing this primarily, this particular soul turn, do you know? It was just loosening it up a little. Don't be so serious. We can have fun with this and then get right back to it. (laughs) Scolding (laughs) on the end. (laughs) Words of death is only fooling yourself, so slow down because he's the only way for you. I mean, it's really unusual for me to hear. I can't think of a lot of other cases. There are probably some, I know, Brent Bourgeois, folks that were sort of had mainstream hits, 
and then did Christian rock. Like Christian rock to me was, there was some fake MTV station on my UHF that was Christian rock, which like was so obviously, it was like music made for commercials. In other words, it's just like, I'm sure the people were plenty talented, but it's just low budget to have somebody, you know, of your caliber that was producing these mega hits and, you know, things remembered now to actually put all that talent into these three albums. I don't know. Were you an anomaly in the God rock world? Or can you say a little about that sort of sociological, like, Now I'm pointing at a different audience. I'm playing with different opening bands, all this different stuff. That's the word anomaly, because I've really not tried to fit a certain pigeonhole. I have to be a freestyle individual and allow my thoughts to roam. My wife, God bless her. I mean, 42 years she's put up with this shit, brother. She provides me the space to stay in a creative mode most of the time. I only have to come out of there once in a while. (laughs) She likes to hear me play. Let's look at the guitar solo of this one a little bit. The I wrote Pink Floyd. It sort of sound, but that just means bluesy. Again, are you collecting these licks over time and putting that, like, I love that. Or is that just, oh, I do that in a lot of songs. I don't, there's nothing special there. That wasn't me. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> that was a player from the studio next door to the studio we were recording in, and he was hearing stuff. And he says to the producer, Baumgarten, man, I'm hearing some stuff. He said, I want Mark to hear this stuff. And man, when I heard it, I said, oh, hell yeah, put that on there. And so he did. It was great. I guess you have enough albums, enough songs, enough place where you get to show off on guitar that having a guest lead player doesn't seem like redundant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Actually, live, are you doing all the leads or does your other guitarist, are you dueling? No, I don't have another guitarist. It's just me. Oh, okay. And you're only doing guitar, what, three-fourths of the time because you're switching over to keys? Yeah, and doing some kind of wonderful, I I don't play anything. I just roam around the stage and sing. How was that transition out of that, that you're playing to get an audience for God Rock? Your initial Grand Funk audience was large enough and of the right demographic enough that you could carry a good percentage of them (laughs) to listen to this 80s stuff. But then when you're done with that, I guess, you know, you didn't have an album for a long time. Can you say a little about that? Oh, yeah, you went back and played with Grand Funk again, did that, the Bosnia album, which is freaking amazing, like as tight as you'd ever been. Thank you. Can you say a little about, okay, now we're, we're transitioning out. We're not going for that particular demographic anymore. I don't know, were folks thinking that you betrayed the people that were your diehard God Rock fans that now are disappointed you're not doing that? Or I haven't heard anything like that at all. But what I have heard has been very encouraging to me. They go, Mark, you weren't made to play music for a bunch of people in a church. You made to play for the world because you need to take that love to the world because the world really needs it way more than the church. Again, you got your fan base before you did this left turn. 
I interviewed Sam Phillips. I was looking at her. She was Leslie Phillips for her first three albums that were in the, in the same time, in the late 80s or mid-80s, something like that, were straight up Christian rock. And even now, when I like look at her new videos online, somebody will comment like, oh, she turned away from Jesus or something. You know, They're upset that that particular thing that they loved in 1985 or something is not happening anymore. That's what religion will do for you. I guess, I guess. Well, let's get uh, number three out here. So Born to Die. So I wanted to pick something that was a little more serious, you know, definitely different musical influences here. And I love those last three 70s Grand Funk albums. Those are probably my favorite. I mean, especially the, I think with Frank Zappa on it, the fact that that happened and that worked. Yeah. Crazy. But I really also like this one. You want to say a little about where you guys were at 1976, Born to Die, the title track going into the song. Well, my cousin... Terry. He was the only child of my Uncle Woody. And my Uncle Woody and I were born the same day and we hung pretty close. But Terry helped this guy build, they rebuild an old Harley Davidson with a sidecar on it. And they got it done and their club was going to ride out to Holly, which is south of Flint, to the Holly Hotel where we used to get together out there and have some beers and get up on the stage and people, you know, it was a hang. So they were on their way out there, and there's a long left sweeper. And this guy who was driving the three-wheeler was screwing the thing on. And from what I understand, what I heard from people that were behind them was something came loose on the bike. The thing left the road, and they were doing about 55 or so. And it rolled down through the ditch. And when it came around the first time, broke my cousin's neck. Terry, he was the same age as I am. and My Uncle Woody, he was distraught. I mean, just tore up. And I thought, I have to write this song for Uncle Woody. (laughs) That Terry's all right. He did what he wanted to do. And you can't be looking at death as the doom and gloom as we're trained to, you know, dressed all up in black and it's a heavy thing. No, man, it's like the graduation, dude. Now that I've done it, it's like, we should be like, that should be the celebration right there. When somebody checks out and they're going home, they're going back out of this mess that we're in. Yeah, that should be a celebration, not a doom and gloom. So Born to Die is a reflection of that sentiment, my brother.
I mean, the tone, despite what you say, is not celebratory. It's still kind of in the don't fear the Reaper minor key, spooky birds-like harmonies. But yeah, I can see from the lyrics there. How does that connect? Can you say a little about this initial boom, 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 how that sentiment that you were expressing, how that translates to, I guess, was that kind of that bass line or is it bass and piano together in the intro? Is that right? Yes. Okay. That's Craig Frost. He heard that. He says, what about like this? And he went, and I went, oh, that's cool. That could work good. We use that. It has a bellish kind of a ring to it. That's interesting that that rhythm, because it's, you know, kind of like the first song that where you had this rhythm that had to underlie everything that you've got the same thing here. There's nothing about the first verse. Life is too short now to live it halfway that you need. Boom, 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 or no, there's an extra note the second time. That's what I'm trying to. It kind of makes it hard to follow, but yet you have to sing straight over it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that wasn't even part of the original song. That was something that Craig basically added. You heard these harmonies all together, or is there any sort of group effort going into who's going to sing where and how, how many layers? Uh, we just stacked, you know, we'd go out and make two passes of each part. Okay. And as you spread them in the stereo pie, put them in the sweet spots and make them reach into the listener. Rundgren told me when we were first doing American Band, of course, he did Shining On after that, but American Band, I was watching and I was, you know, in the studio with him and he was doing some stuff. And I said, and it might be my ears, but don't you think that that, that guitar needs like a boost at about 3.5K right in there? And he said, yes, but we don't boost that frequency. He says, we pull everything else preventing you from hearing that frequency in that instrument out of it where you're not adding to the, you know, the noise floor. I thought that has been my friend ever since. That's really, you know, gain staging and keeping the noise down instead of adding a frequency that it needs. I pull down the other ones that are preventing me from hearing that. It works. You know, the tone of those harmonies, of course, connotes like Buffalo Springfield, CSN, but no, it's actually Rundgren. That's kind of Actually, Rundgren just did that stuff all day. Yeah. So is the third one, Craig, that enabled you to actually have the three-part harmony? No, we just went back out and did them. Okay, because it seemed like it becomes really a part of your sound by this point. But you're saying that wasn't even part of the live thing. You just had to make do with two. And people don't notice, you know, (laughs) live. It's hard to mix it. So your new band, when you're covering Grand Funk songs, you could actually do those things that you couldn't even do live. uh, Yeah. (laughs) The initial time through. Yeah, man. And that's fun. You know, we always have fun. That's my goal on stage is to really have fun with the guys. And that's why it's very important to be buddies and to share everything, to feel like family, more like family. So then when we hit the stage, dude, that's the way it comes off. And people love seeing that. We're tight. We love each other, man. We're brothers up there. So how was the dynamic different then? It sounds like with the solo stuff, you've got your demo and it's pretty much worked out. But you're saying even with this band, you wrote the drum part to American Band. So how was this one in terms of the, you already said Craig added this significant portion, but what about the rest of the song? Do you know, okay, we need a whole bunch of ride cymbal on the choruses or how much is determined, how much is organic? It's contributed, you know, while we're doing it and we're rehearsing in the studio going through, because we get 
all the bugs worked out prior to hitting the studio. That way we go in there and we don't waste any time and we know what we're going to do. We lay it down. And as far as the contributions from each individual player, you know, after playing the demo to them, I tell them what I would like to give them that leeway to be creative. But I'll let you know if you're getting too far out, you know. I am the final say on it. So we have that understanding and have a great relationship. How did that work with the co-written songs? I know there, you know, a lot that you wrote by yourself, but is it sort of, if it's co-written, is that sometimes was that you had a whole song, but then somebody came up with something else that was significant enough that they get a co-writing credit? Or was it actually organically, you know, you and Craig or you and Don sitting together and... When it was Don and I, Don wrote the lyrics and I wrote the music. And then with Craig in there, depending on what he contributed, we'd always give him his credit. Everybody needs to have a little something to go on. You can't just be creative and not be uh, reimbursed for it. Well, I didn't notice looking at the old ones how often so many of those bass lines are so key for what the song is. But yet, was that not uh, the publishing over, you know, should we just split everything more ways or, you know, give a certain amount of arrangement credit? I've heard that as a separate thing. Like, let's take a third of our publishing and we'll just split that because that's for arrangements. Any discussions around like that with Mel? No, he never really didn't have any vocals. He couldn't couldn't sing, didn't want to sing. I always thought he could. I think everybody can and they don't like the sound of their own voice. And that's why they say they can't. That's my own opinion. But as far as any mention or credit, as far as writers, Mel got, I think, a couple in all those albums and that uh, it was more or less just being friendly. Well, some of these with Don was that he was bringing in, he already had some lyrics and then you put music to it. You had music, but yet you felt like, I don't really know what to do. Just go ahead and take this. That was the dynamic that you had so, were so overflowing with music that you had extra songs that you were giving away. I was kind of like that, but... I would be setting up my amp, playing a jam that I, you know, I always got a jam and something new. I got every, a new every day. So I'm doing a jam thing. And, hey, Brewer says, hey, you got any lyrics for that? And I go, no, I just now started playing. He said, can I write? And go ahead. My God, shining on. That's how that happened. Just trying to think of the, if there are any arrangement stuff we want to pull out here. There's this nice, as it gets mellow. So you've got your, your setup. At some point after you've got the chorus, it kind of just goes to a drone, right? It's one chord. It could go as long as you want. This is what made me think of kind of Pink Floyd for this, because, you know, it could be a 20-minute song. <laughs> and there's a nice, let's see, 434. For some reason, that, da, 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 that little transition thing that introduces all this extra the bell from the ride cymbal and the piano tinkling that take you out of the rest of the song. Exactly. But it's a second guitar. You couldn't even do that live, right? Right. A keyboard player would have to grab that. It's like the note on the harmony on the lead for American Band. My keyboard player plays it. Okay, with, gotcha. Plays a harmony note, and it sounds good. It works. I haven't heard any of the, uh, actually have the guitar, the keyboard try to do a guitar-like sound, right? Is it distorted up so they, they can fake a second guitar? Yeah, he's got a... He's got a Hammond that he's been able to, somehow he makes the guitar, it's very much like a guitar. It's like, holy crap, man. You ain't supposed to sound like that. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Is this one one that's actually still in your live set, Born to Die? Born to Die? No, it's not. 
too mellow for the stage? How did this? People want to, they come to the concert, they want to rock, man. Most of the time I play Heartbreaker or, you know, some mean mistreater and people like that too, but they really want to rock. They, they want, you know, something from E Pluribus Funk. They, they want to get up and dance. Even the old timers like myself. I guess the live thing is really your heart and soul now. I mean, we're, we're looking at, for a final thing, we're going to introduce a 2015 single that you had, which is very nicely arranged and it's, you know, it's perfectly good, but is it the economics? Why, why have we not seen another album since 2006, a full studio album? It's the economics. And, you know, the business has changed, brother. Record companies are not like what they used to be. They want to do a 360 deal and encompass your publishing and all everything they want. I'm not into that. I own my publishing. Just looking at the equipment behind you, do you have enough to record an album right there in your room? Yeah. Well, I would encourage you to do that. I guess, tell me a little about this last song before we hear it, Take You Out. Why was this the one song that you're going to bring to completion and do a full arrangement of? And was this for a particular occasion or you just needed a single? Yeah, I wanted a single. And it was for me, when I heard the groove, my friend and I were writing music. Paul Sopetti, he's from Pennsylvania and over uh, Bethlehem. Anyway, he was up visiting and we were down in my music room where I rehearsed the band and he was playing something on the keyboards and then switched up to playing on the guitar. He started playing it. And I went, hey, that's a good lick, man. He says, yeah, it goes like this. And he sang and it was some kind of a protest song. And I said, dude, that don't need to be a protest song. That needs to be a rock song. And it needs to be about a guy who is really wanting to dance with this girl. And he's over there and he's going to take her out. He's fantasizing. He's, he's got he's got a full-blown thing going here, man. And he says, well, you write it, man, and, and send it to me. And, uh, and let's see what you're talking about. So I wrote it. I sent it to him. He goes, oh, my God. I never heard it that way. <laughs> he says, I would have never heard it that way. He was uh, very well pleased with it. And what's his name? So we can have that on the credits here. T-O-P-E-T-E. So he wrote all the music then? This this creepy, the bridge <laughs> gets a little... Oh, I did the bridge. Okay. Yeah. And all the lyrics, of course, except for Take You Out was part of his song, but he was talking about taking somebody out. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that adds to the whole, I guess, again, kind of like your, my comment about Nadine, that this is a song that has sinister overtones that don't seem to go with the message. (laughs) But I guess if you're talking about, you know, somebody's fantasy, like that can get pretty weird. That can get. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very cool. Anything else to promote? On the GoFundMe, I have uh, Mark Feiner's Mid-Michigan Flood Relief. We're trying to raise money for the Michigan Red Cross to help those families that, uh, man, I'm talking devastation. And the uh, lamestream doesn't play it. They don't show any of that, not even the local channels. So we got to do what we can amongst the people. That's the only thing I've got going right now. I've got a potential video that we recorded back in 2017 in Santiago, Chile. And that's almost a done deal from what I understand. Because we finally got a company that's going to put it out and distribute it from Chile with Love, Mark Finer's American band. So that'll be another live, you know, with the latest iteration of the old tunes or? Yeah, it's a live show in Chile, but you'll see the Chilean fans absolutely 
love me and sing my songs louder than I do. That's very cool. I mean, I really like the live, so this is 2003 live energy album that you put out at that point that it's just clear that that band, you know, is fully as good as anything you've ever played with and just tremendously high energy as would be obvious from the name. <laughs> well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to to have an excuse to listen back to all those old albums. I certainly hadn't heard everything Grand Funk had ever done, but now I, I almost have. So very cool. And much less the solo stuff, which I just had no idea about. Right on. I appreciate it. Your interview has been very interesting. You don't just ask run-of-the-mill questions. And, and I like your ability to, to dissect and, and pull the parts apart and actually know that this is what it's setting up. And this is what that said. And this goes into the, you're an able-bodied man, brother. Well, thanks. Yeah. 
Thanks so much to Mark. Super interesting guy. I'll admit Grand Funk Railroad was sort of a hole in my classic rock knowledge. I knew, of course, some of the big singles, but I didn't know that he had done so much work with Todd Rundgren and that one album produced by Zappa. The early albums are really kind of an American version of Zeppelin, and probably my favorite song is Bad Time, which was covered by the Jayhawks for one of their most famous albums. Anyway, definitely worth checking out. Please go to markfarner.com to see his current activities. I think his new live album is going to be great. And there's a link to his Mid-Michigan Flood Relief GoFundMe there, which I did donate to. My next episode here is going to be with Ward White, a really interesting singer-songwriter, sort of David Bowie-esque, but American with a little country rock. Subsequent to that, I've done four great ones in a row, one with trumpeter John Hassel, then Chris Franz, drummer from the Talking Heads, one with Laraji, a New Age zither guy who's just released some really awesome improvised piano music. And Peter Milton Walsh, the leader of the Australian band The Apartment. Just a really great run. I hope you subscribe to this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or look us up on your favorite podcast acquisition service. As always, I hope if you get some value out of this that you will consider going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Sign up for a small per-episode donation, and that'll really help ensure that I keep making these episodes and I feel appreciated and there will be good vibes everywhere. I hope your September is kicking off well, that you are artistically inspired, that you are weathering the plague and the fires and the rain of frogs and whatever else is happening. And please register to vote. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>